Yes, Lord, thank you, Father, that we can be here tonight. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the joy, Lord, the privilege of gathering together, Lord, and lifting up your name. Worshipping you, Father, for who you are, Lord, and for what you've done. I pray, Lord, specifically for tonight, Father, as we look at the gospel, Father, that we can set pride aside, Lord, and acknowledge, Father, one thing, and that is that we need, Lord, salvation. We cannot accept salvation if we don't acknowledge that we are in need of salvation. We cannot receive grace if we don't acknowledge that we need grace. We cannot receive forgiveness if we don't acknowledge that there are things that we need to be forgiven of. And thank you, Lord, that by your grace, Lord, you come and shine a light, Lord, on those areas, as uncomfortable as they might be. They are necessary, Lord. And we know, Lord, that you are a good Father coming to give life. Thank you, Father, for your perfect world. Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect example. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, everybody. So we are continuing with our series on the pastoral letters, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And tonight we are going to look at verses 12 to 17. And we're looking at Paul's testimony. And to understand this in context, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, that Paul is writing that there's a certain group of people that have wandered away from this charge that is given to the church, this love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. And they've turned away from this and they are busy with vain discussions, fruitless discussions, a lot of talking about scripture, a lot of discussing Christian things, a lot of discussing the law, but there's no fruit, there's no life, nothing flows from it. There's no action, it produces nothing. It loves no one. It stirs no one, it disciples no one, it reaches no one. Fruitless discussions. And Paul says that these people, they desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they are saying or about what they are making such confident assertions. Speaking about the law, and like we looked at last week, that Paul then says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In other words, that this group of people wants to use the law for the wrong group of people and therefore for the wrong reasons. And as we looked at, he says that the law is not for the just, but for the lawless, the unjust, the disobedient, the unholy and profane. Meaning that the law is there to restrain the human heart from committing much more sin than it would if it's not restrained. A lot of people would do a lot more evil if there is no law. I mean... People steal, but a lot more people would steal if you could steal. A lot of people commit murder, but a lot more people would if you could. Are you with me? And we see in Scripture that the law is there not to bring about salvation or to bring about righteousness. Nobody will be saved through good works. It's not the purpose of the law. That's how these men want to apply the law. But the law is there for diagnosing the human heart. The law is there as a mirror, so that when we look at it, we realize, shucks, something's wrong. I need help. And not only does it show us the fruit of what is wrong, but it points to the root. And many times we kind of miss that. And like we saw last week, many times we think that if we know that there's a writing that we should do, that that implies that we would then do it. That's not true. And a lot of times we find ourselves busy with dead religion. This whole Christian thing is just so, so tough because I constantly have to do what I actually don't want. And the reason why I do it is because of fear of punishment. That's the law. That's how the law works. I want to speed, but I'm not going because 
what if there's a speed cop around the corner? So for fear, I, I don't. But I actually still want to. That's living under the law. The whole Christian life shouldn't be trying to do something that we actually don't want to do. That's law. And like Jesus said, it doesn't only show us the fruit, but it points to the root. And he said that if you commit murder, then you are a murderer. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer. That's the root. That's where this thing comes from. That's what's wrong. Don't just look at the fruit. Look at the root. I tell you that if you look lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery. Look at the root. The law is there for diagnosing the human heart. But many times we want to apply it in our own life as the cure as well. And like we said, that would be like telling someone, hey, you are coughing, please stop. Doesn't work that way. Hey, your nose is running, don't let it. It's not how it works. You diagnose, you see, hey, there's wrong, there's a fruit here, there's a symptom, you are coughing. You need to go to the doctor to receive the cure. And while the law is there to diagnose the problem, the gospel is the cure. Jesus comes and doesn't only deal with the fruit, making us act a different way, but desiring to act a different way. Amen? And in light of that, Paul is going to explain to us how that looked like in his own life. This is his testimony. This is from a guy that also wanted to apply the law unlawfully for the wrong group of people trying to earn his salvation. And he explains the work of the gospel in his own life. So with that in mind, let's read through these couple of verses and see what we can learn. From verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Beautiful passage of scripture. And this verse 17 that we see here, this is the inevitable outflow of experiencing what Paul experienced here. So we're going to look at that at the end. But tonight I want to start with verse 16. That's the purpose statement. Paul is making a statement here and saying that God saved him for a reason. And then we want to work from there back up to verse 12. So let's start with verse 16. It says, but I received mercy for this reason. This is the purpose. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those were to believe in him for eternal life. Now one thing that Paul's not saying here, he's not saying, hey guys, everybody gets saved a certain way, mine works a little bit different, God didn't love me and elected me, he just wanted to use me as an example for other people. No, he also loved Paul. He also elected Paul. He also saved him by grace through faith, but he's saying that there's a reason for this. And the same is actually true of our salvation as well. That yes, we are saved because God loved us. He elected us. He saved us by grace through faith. But there's also something that needs to be seen in our lives and the people around us 
need to witness this. And Paul is saying that he's an example for those who were to believe in him for eternal life, that we looking back at this now can learn something from the life of Paul and God wants us to see something here, experience something here and live this reality out. There's something for us to learn here. And the first thing is, verse 15, says the following, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And Paul's saying here that this is a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance. He's not saying, ah, guys, I wrote a couple of stuff just now before this. There was 11 verses. That's not that important or that trustworthy, but this really is. It's not what he's saying. He's saying in light of the false teachers, these people that desire to be teachers of the law, that's empty teaching. That's not acceptable. That's not trustworthy. This is an acceptable, trustworthy statement. This is the gospel. This is what we should look to. And five times in these three letters, he's writing to these young men in charge of these two churches, and he's saying, this is trustworthy. This is the core. This is the center. This is something that we should focus on. This is central to the faith. What I just wrote, that's also true. That's also important. But this is central. Deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the first thing that we see here also in light of Paul's life and in light of the context is that the gospel brings salvation, not the law. He's illustrating this in his own life and no more perfect example than Paul himself. Paul in his previous life persecuted the church because they had faith in Christ. They wanted people to follow the law. He wanted people to follow the law. He persecuted them to Damascus. It's like 300 kilometers away from where he lived. And in today we think, well, that's a quick drive, three hours. To those of us who are not law-abiding citizens, maybe two hours. But we're like, that's not that far. In his day, that's far. They walked. Maybe drove a horse or a donkey, if you were fancy like that. But mostly walked 300 kilometers away, persecuted people that believed in Jesus because he thought that our righteousness comes through the law. He was also one that applied the law unlawfully, using it on the wrong group of people. And he writes in Philippians 3, then he says, everybody who thinks that they have some kind of righteousness because they obey the law, or think that they are good and and righteous in God's sight because they obey the law, I had more reason. I thought so more. I live that way in a greater way than you do. And then he lists a lot of things that says that this is kind of my pedigree. This was the things that I thought to myself, man, this is what makes me righteous before God. And he says, I count them as loss. I count them as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and being found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that depends on the law, but a righteousness that depends on faith in Christ Jesus, that I might be found in him, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, that I might become like him in his death, that by any means necessary, I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's not by our good works. Paul realized this. He saw this in his own life. He doesn't produce this, trying to earn your righteousness by the law. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And that takes us to the first point tonight. Paul's testimony. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But this we know. We know this. We've heard this. 
We understand this. But many times we miss the implication. If Jesus comes into the world to save sinners, what do you need to be to receive this salvation? Sinner. You see, I don't know if you've ever thought about this question, but there's this law thing that we speak about, this trying to do good works, this dead works, this heavy thing resting on our shoulders where the Christian life feels so dead and feels so burdensome and we never feel completely loved by God and accepted by God because we don't know if we've done enough. And it's this heavy thing. And then there's this gospel reality that in Christ Jesus we are forgiven, we are set free, we are restored in relationship to the Father. When God looks at us, He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Why would we move to the law? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. Why would you live under the law and not in Christ? Why do we struggle so much to move out under the law and into Christ? Pride. Because to move out under the law, you need to acknowledge that you don't have it in yourself. We want to receive grace, but we many times don't want to acknowledge that we need grace. Grace is to receive what you do not earn. You cannot earn grace. It's not because of who you are, it's in spite of who you are. That's what grace does. We want to be forgiven, but we don't want to acknowledge that we need forgiveness. Are you with me? And tonight I want to ask us that question. There we are sitting tonight. Is this the reality in your life? Because look at what Paul says. He's the worst of sinners. He came into safe sinners of whom I am the foremost, of whom I am the worst. And it's not as if Paul, you know, took a list of everybody's sins in the world and then he compared his and he realized, shucks, I really am the worst. I should give up on this law thing. I'm not going to make it. No. He's saying the moment that you move out from the law and into Christ, there's no more list. There's no more comparison. There's no more, I'm actually a good person because I do this, this, and this. There's those people that do that, that, and that. No, the only reality in Christ is that I am saved and I needed that salvation. And there's nobody that I can think of that needed it more than me. Are you with me? Is that the reality when we think about our salvation? C.H. Persian writes, he says, there's no scripture in the whole Bible that came to encourage people that want to earn their own salvation by good works. There's no such scripture. Jesus didn't come and say, come on boys, you're almost there. Just try a little bit harder. No. In fact, in Luke 18, from verse 9 to 14, Jesus tells a parable. And he starts this way. It says, Jesus told this parable for those who thought that their own good works produced their righteousness. He told this parable for those who thought that they were better than others. That they don't need salvation, they don't need forgiveness. It's a well-known story. And he says, two men went to the temple and prayed. One a Pharisee. And he stood and he prayed, Thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men. Unjust, extortioners, adulterers, or like this, this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I receive. And he said, and the tax collector stood far off on his knees and he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, beating his chest. He said, Lord, have mercy 
on me a sinner. Lord, have mercy. And Jesus said, that man went home forgiven, righteous, reconciled to the Father. Can we acknowledge that tonight? That we are in need of salvation. There's nothing we add. There's nothing we bring to the table. There's no good thing that I can give to God. Because if we cannot acknowledge that, we cannot receive salvation. Then we are still living under the law. Which is good and which is perfect, but it's not there to cure us. It's there to diagnose. Can we acknowledge that tonight? That we are in need of grace. Because it's easy to answer the question, Hey, who says we need grace? Everybody, yes, I do. But then why? Why would you say that? Why do you need grace? And now it gets personal. But grace is needed. Forgiveness is needed. Salvation is needed. And also this gives us hope. Not only for ourselves, but for those that we are trying to reach with the gospel. I don't know if there's a family member, a person at work or whatever, and you're trying to reach them and it just seems like nothing's happening. I don't know if this person is ever going to get saved. And then there's, there's Paul. He was literally against Christ, literally persecuting the church. And one day, in a moment, God intervened and he got saved. Nobody is out of reach for salvation. And you know what should remind us of that? Each time we walk past the mirror and we see ourselves, we're like, man, anybody can get saved. Amen? Are you with me? And if we haven't experienced that, then we're even viewing the law in the wrong way. Because if we really look in that mirror long enough, we'll see, man, I'm in need of grace. Because many times we might do the right thing, but it's for the wrong reason. It's living for ourselves, not living for God. And the second thing that we see here is that there's change inevitably. Verse 13 to 14, we read the following. It says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And just first thing to clarify here, verse 13, when Paul says he received mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief, he's not saying that God had mercy because he didn't know what he was doing. He's not saying that whenever someone is ignorant, then God has to give grace. That would be an antithesis. Grace is to receive something that you don't deserve. So we cannot say that this is the grounds for deserving grace. Are you with me? He's not saying, I, I didn't know what I was doing, therefore God had mercy. He's saying God had mercy because he needed mercy. His unbelief and his ignorance caused God to extend mercy because he needed mercy. He's saying he was forgiven because he needed forgiveness. Are you with me? And yes, there is a difference between deliberate and unintentional sin. We read in Numbers 15 from verse 22, you can go and read that. If someone sins unintentionally, then this is the thing, so ignorantly not knowing. And then we also read in Hebrews 6 the difference from someone knowing, experiencing, seeing something of God and then still rejecting Christ. It looks a little bit different. Hebrews 10 verse 26 says that if we deliberately continue sin, then there's no longer an offer for sin. 
just a fearful expectation of judgment. So yes, there is a difference. In the same chapter, in verse 20, it says that there was two men, and we'll look at that next week, that was handed over to Satan. Sounds quite strange, huh? We'll look at that next week. Because they deliberately did something. They knew the truth, and they still did something else. So yes, there is a difference, but Paul is not saying that because he didn't know what he was doing there for God had grace. He's saying God had grace because he needed grace. God forgave because he needed forgiveness. He was in the wrong and therefore needed mercy. That's what Paul is busy saying here. And something that we need to understand from this passage as well is that when we look at the life of Paul, in Acts 22 verse 3, he says he was raised under Gamaliel, trained by this Pharisee in the strictest manner of the law. And he was very zealous for God as some of the people were those days. Very zealous for God. He really wanted to do good for God. In Acts 26 verse 9, he said, I was convinced that I had to do many things against this Jesus of Nazareth. And what we see here is just because we are sincere, just because we are very zealous for God, and just because we are convinced doesn't necessarily mean that we are right. Are you with me? We need to acknowledge that. It's true for me, it's true for every one of us. Just because we are sincere, just because we want to do it for God, just because we are convinced, that doesn't mean we're always right. We can be sincerely deceived. Are you with me? We can be very zealous for God and still do the wrong thing. That's why it's very important to surround ourselves with those who really love the truth and study the truth and examine the truth. Amen. And also allow the Holy Spirit to come and guide and lead us into all truth. But what we see here in Paul's life is change. Christianity is inevitably a converting religion. It brings about change. It expects change. It converts us from something that we were into something that we are now. Paul says, though formerly I was. Formerly I was. I acted this way. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received this mercy and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that so beautiful? It kind of paints this picture that Paul is walking up this dry river bank. Going in a direction that he should not go, busy doing stuff that he should not do. And then as he encounters the gospel, it is as if the stream of grace comes flowing through this river bank and it kind of knocks your feet out from under you and it pulls you into a different direction. And not just is it taking it, it's overflowing. The banks of the river are overstreaming with grace and everywhere it goes, it produces faith, it produces love. And it changes us from living for ourselves to having faith in God and living for Him. From living in selfishness, wanting to keep to ourselves, gather for ourselves, protect ourselves, to wanting to love and share with those around us. It inevitably brings about change. From per- Paul persecuting Jesus to Paul making Jesus known. Do you see that radical change that the gospel brings? Inevitable transformation. Why? Because grace overflows. Grace comes and empowers and changes us from within. God does the work in us. He pours out His Spirit in us like we looked at that verse last week from Ezekiel. I will pour out my Spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh and that will cause you to walk in my ways. As God brings renewal. That takes us to point number two. There is no salvation without sanctification. 
You cannot be saved and not changed. It doesn't work that way. There is inevitable change the moment we are saved. There is no salvation without sanctification. The Bible speaks about us coming alive again. Like the one guy says, there's quite a change when someone is dead and then they become alive again. Amen. And it's not a perfect change, but it's a significant change. There's something noted, there's something realized. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Behold, look, see, this person has been made new. A different desire that's in us. Perfect no, but significant yes. There is no salvation without sanctification. And I want to ask us that sitting here tonight, is that true of your life? Have you experienced this? Something coming alive. A different way of life. A desire for the things of God. And yes, it might fade, and yes, it might sometimes be stronger and sometimes weaker, but nonetheless, it's there. Something has come alive. Have you experienced that before? Because there is no salvation without sanctification. If that hasn't happened, then you might be still under the law. Because many times you kind of think, man, I knew God is displeased with me, but I'm going to try hard. And we kind of list certain things, you know, there's those things that I struggle with, and now for a couple of weeks I haven't. And I've read my Bible and I prayed, so now I feel good. God must be pleased. That's not salvation. That's just a false perception of justification. Because God not only looks at what we do, but why we do that. And Christianity is not not doing certain things, it's following Jesus. It's active obedience. As we do new things, therefore we don't do old things. But it's not primarily don't do, it's primarily follow. Follow me. Has that happened in your life? And then the last thing we see in the life of Paul is here in verse 12. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And again, just to clarify, Paul is not saying Jesus looked at Paul from a distance and thought, wow, that's a good guy. If I can kind of get him on my team, then we'll do well. And then he appointed him to his service. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. So he's saying, he, he thanks him because he's judging him faithful because he gave him the strength. You understanding what I'm saying? Before it comes to the ministry, Christ is the one that enabled him. I thank Jesus that saved me, transformed me, empowered me through his spirit and appointed me into his service and therefore judges me faithful. He's the one that gave me the tools to do the job. That's why I'm equipped now. Are you with me? And that is what Paul is saying here. We all know the saying, or we've maybe heard the saying, let me kind of say it that way, that God does not call the equipped, but he equips those whom he calls. Have you ever heard that before? God doesn't look around for people that are magnificent and very gifted and very talented and then like, okay, I'm going to pick that guy. He, kind of, he's a, he has the goods. No, God saves and he says, who will go? Who will, who will I send? And then whoever sincerely says, Lord, here I am, send me. It's like, okay, here's the goods. Now go. 
He equips those whom He calls. And it's kind of so ironic in the life of Paul that Paul being brought up as a Pharisee through Gamaliel, the, the other Pharisee, in the strictest manner of the law, like this guy would recite Old Testament books out of his head. And then God calls him to do what? To be the apostle to the Gentiles, those who don't know the law. And then there's Peter, the guy who's not a Pharisee, not trained to know Scripture that well. To whom does God send him? He's the apostle to the Jews. He goes to the guy who knows the Bible. And it's God saying, like, I want you to know that it's not because of what you've done. It's not about how you've equipped yourself. It's me enabling you to do a certain work. And that takes us to point number three. God is the one who empowers us for ministry. God is the one that empowers us for ministry. It's not about what we've done. And many times, even in secular sense, there's people that's doing well business-wise, made a lot of good decisions, you know, very well in doing business. And then there's people that went and studied certain things and you kind of have the capacity to understand things and learn things quickly. And then there's people that's good in sport. But sometimes we think we made ourselves like that. Are you with me? Like kind of, I made myself fast. Or I made myself strong. Or I made myself big, you know, if it's a sporting type of thing. Or I decided when I was young, I'm going to be smart now and study stuff really quick and fast. No, it's not how it works. God made you like that. He's the one that empowers. He's the one that forms us. He's the one that shapes us. And yes, there's things that we do from our side, but it's because grace produces effort. It's not that effort earns grace. Are you with me? It's God doing the work in us. It's God supplying His Spirit. And many times, we still live under the law here, again. And we know God has called us to do certain things like Maria said, just the general call of God to Christians, preach the gospel, make disciples. Everybody should do that. And then we're like, yes, I know I have to, but I still first need to do this and that. I first have to kind of get this right. I first kind of have to sort that out. No. God is waiting for people to say, here I am, Lord, send me. Why? Because I've seen what you have done for me. I'd behold your salvation, your faithfulness, and your grace. Here I am, Lord. Use me. And again tonight, where are we? Here where we are sitting. Are we feeling God pressing certain things on our heart that we should do? Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Reach out to that person at work. Maybe step up in church saying, hey, I want to lead small group. I want to facilitate small group. Train me, guide me so that I can plant out and reach new people at well. What is it that God is laying on your heart? Because that'll be there, but you are delaying. Why? God is the one that enables and empowers us for ministry. Allow God to come and work. He's not looking for your resume. He's not looking for your CV. He's looking for you to say, yeah, I am, Lord. Use me. Send me. And have your way. Beautiful. But now to make it a little bit more personal as well, that this reality is also true of our salvation. Look at what Paul writes to the Ephesian church. Ephesians 2 from verse 5 to 7. It says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved, and raised up with Him, and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, here's the reason, in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches and His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. It's a gift of God, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God has prepared before, and that we should walk in them. Our salvation should show the world the same as Paul's salvation. And that takes us to the last point tonight. Number four, our personal salvation should testify of the same. Our personal salvation should testify of the same. And let me ask us that while we are sitting here tonight, is that true of our life? As we share our story, is the message that the people hear, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Man, if I listen to your story and about how God saved, He came to save sinners. Or is our testimony that God helps those who help themselves? Because that's not the gospel. And that's not biblical. God helps those that acknowledge that they don't have anything to give. They cannot help themselves. Are you with me? Jan Lowe saw this beautiful picture at intercession when we were praying on Monday about people that's writing a book with their own face in front, autobiographies. And now we are throwing that into the fire. And say, Lord, we are done writing our own story. We are done trying to make ourselves known. We are writing a story for the king to make him known. And the testimony is that God came into the world to save sinners. And when I tell the people about the work that Christ has done in my life, this truth stands out, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I needed that salvation. Can we say like Paul, I formerly was. And again, our stories look different. But the essence of it is living for self. And yes, there might not have been this extreme wrong stuff that I have done constantly, but I lived for myself. I kept for myself. I loved myself. And then Christ came. And now I no longer live for myself, but for Him who died for me and was raised again. Is our life testifying to the world that there is no salvation without sanctification? That God not only saves, but He sanctifies. Can people see that in our lives? And can people see that God is the one that empowers us for ministry? Are we constantly shining a light into God who enables and God who empowers, God who created? Or are we pointing to ourselves? We need to answer these questions tonight. And then lastly, as we reflect on these questions, the inevitable outflow, I want to end off with this. Verse 12 and 17. Paul's testimony kind of sandwiched between thanksgiving and praise. It says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. When Paul starts to think about his testimony, there's a thankfulness for what God has done. And then at the end, there's inevitable worship flowing out. When Paul thinks about this, when he recounts how God has saved him, this is the inevitable outflow to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And when I think about what God has done for me, there's a thankfulness in my heart. What, was that our reality tonight as we are driving to church? Man, there's a thankfulness. I'm about to go and worship 
the one who saved me. Not because of who I am, in spite of who I am. And as we were busy worshiping that inevitable outflow of praising the King of Kings who saved us, is that true of our lives? And tonight as we reflect on what God has done for us, may this be the inevitable outflow. And as we reflect on these four points, I want to invite Maria to the front to sing that last song again so that we can respond in the appropriate way as we reflect on salvation as Paul did to glorify and worship the King of Kings. Amen. So let's take a couple of minutes, reflect on those four points. Malcolm, if you can put them on the board for us again. And as Maria is busy worshiping, if you've done reflected and if you've considered the salvation of God in your own life, stand with us. Let's worship the King of Kings. Amen.